I was talking to somebody this week and they were telling me a story of how um, in recent years that their, their family had really kind of felt um, the, the call or the push to share Jesus with a member of their extended family. And she, when she told me, she was talking about him and she said, you know, he'd kind of lived his life like strongly, going hard, doing his own thing. And so she said, when, when they felt like they were supposed to share Jesus with him, she, the word she said is, I thought it was gonna be really hard, right? But they started to do it anyways. And what they didn't know was that he had actually just previously gone in for a physical for work and at his physical gotten not good news. Like the doctor had basically said, you are not in good shape. And there's some indicators here maybe of cancer. Right, So on the one hand, they're thinking, gosh, this guy has lived for himself for all this time. This is gonna be really hard. On the other side of the story, he is having a crisis where he's kind of coming face to face with a little bit of his own mortality. And in that moment, as they started to share Jesus, it was what she said. She said, we thought it would be hard, but it was actually easy. Right, And, and well, the reason that I tell that story is um, probably to, to highlight the reality that a lot of us actually don't tend to think about eternity on a very regular basis. Often, like, it's like eternity is kind of something out there. And to be honest, like, there are days that my husband texts me in the afternoon, like, hey, what's for dinner? And I'm like, <gasps> didn't think about that, right? Like, I have barely thought through to the end of the day that, sorry, that didn't, I, that made you sound bad. <laughs> I could give more context to that story. It just came out wrong. Whatever. Moving on. Um, um, but it, it's just kind of like that thing of like, I've barely thought through to the end of the day, let alone like, hey, maybe how is my actions today impacting eternity? Right? And, and so often you see it in culture that it's not until a point of disaster or not until you get to this place of a bad report that then you actually start going, ooh, maybe I should think about this. Um, and yet, you know, Dennis gave an excellent last week, message last week on eternity. If you missed it, I'd really encourage you to listen to it because I really just want to pick up from last week and kind of continue on from what he taught already. And, and if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we've been talking worldview. And as we're talking about worldview, we had gone through the big four questions, right? And, and, and what I said a few weeks ago was that you, the big four questions, like who am I and where do I come from? What is wrong with the world and how do we fix it? Where am I headed? And there's another one that's just gone right now. Um, but they inform, like your, the answers to your big, oh, what's the meaning and purpose of life? Big one. Um, those four questions, basically how you answer those inform how you're gonna answer every other question. So they're important to think about. So let me give you an example, right? If you're going, how should I use my money? How should I budget my money? Well, is all there is this life or does how you steward your money impact another life? Because if you're gonna answer that backwards, it will affect how you choose to steward your money in this world, right? How should I steward my time? Well, is all there is this life or does how you steward your time in this world impact another one? And so these worldview questions are fundamentally important for the smaller things in life, right? 
And, and, yet, and so what we're talking about though is because we've seen such a cultural move that has really come to where there's such a clash of worldview over these questions. Right, so what happens if you start erasing eternity from the narrative, right? Which is what we've seen happen, right? So if you, if you kind of come outside of Christianity and, and into the world, really eternity has been relegated to the realm of myth, right? The devil has been relegated to the realm of myth. Hell has been relegated to the realm of myth. And it's just something that it's like, that's for, you know, silly people who don't believe in science, so on one level, eternity is completely gone. But then when you look even at what's happened inside of Christianity, the, the movement that you've seen has been kind of two different things. One is when salvation really got made about, like if you say the prayer, you go to heaven when you die, right? So heaven gets pushed off as like, this is only a concern for when I die. And as long as I've checked the box, no problems. It's not something I have to think about in this present moment. Or the other thing that's happened is, you know, there's, there's been a question that's arisen and honestly, it's a good question that we should be able to know how to answer. Is well, how could a loving God send people to hell? Okay, like if you're gonna struggle with that question, go back to Dennis's message last week or there's a ton of really good stuff, but we should be able to wrestle with the, that question but then answer it because that's a question that's being asked. Right, But in that sense, because people had such a hard time with that, one of the things that happened was just a wholesale attempt to remarket God. Right? Let's just, we can't reconcile that question, so let's just remove it and paint him differently from what he says about himself. So again, you've seen eternity just kind of whoop. You know, I, I, there was a quote from the 60s that said, we don't know what happened, but hell just disappeared. It was there and suddenly it was gone. Well, why might that be a problem? You know, like if we remove eternity from the narrative, do we have any problems? Well, let's look at Colossians 3. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Okay, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. It kind of reminds me, you know, of Matthew 6 as well, where it says, hey, don't store up your treasure on earth. Store it up in heaven. Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what it's really concerned about is your heart. Now, Colossians says, set your mind and set your heart in heaven, right? So the, the knowledge realm is important, Right, the understanding realm is important. Correct understanding is important, but it's actually going after more than your knowledge. It's actually coming after your affections. It's coming after your desire. It's a fundamental question of what do you want? You know, that word set, that it starts in that scripture, it says set your mind, actually it means to seek, to strive after, to crave, which is pretty strong words which means that it's not really actually a default setting. Like, 
most of us probably don't wake up in the morning by default with our affections in the heavenly places. I don't know, maybe you do, fantastic. But it's the idea that we have to consciously orient the affections of our heart. We have to consciously steward our desire. And we have to consciously continue to stay aware of a higher reality. And so it means it's like, man, I begin to, as a disciple, I begin to steward my heart. I begin to cultivate my longings. What is it that I'm desiring? What is it that I want? What is that I'm hungry on? What is it that I've placed my highest values on? Because then what happens when we start doing that, if we start cultivating our affection for heaven, right? And now let's just be clear. Hebrews talks about shadow and substance, right? It says, earth is but a shadow of the substance that exists in heaven, right? So we, it's like, man, if this is good, then that is better, right? So we begin to cultivate our affection for the greater thing. And the natural overflow is that it puts to death earthly desires, Right, like if you are struggling with earthly desires, there one way you can do is keep like battling against that thing. But another thing that you can do is begin to cultivate an affection for something greater. Because when your affection is captured by something greater, that thing dies. Why would I want that when I could have that? Right? So it's an affection issue. And so we begin to cultivate our affections, which changes our desire, which like things begin to get put to death. But then there's this whole other thing that happens as well. When we begin to cultivate our affection for that reality, it begins to open up the gateway for that reality to come and affect this one in the now, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, right? Like you might, we've ha- we've, this has happened before actually so many times when we, you know, we pray for people who are sick and we see healing and it's so fantastic. I love that we see heaven enter now, right? And there are times that we could look back to testimonies where you're sitting and you're praying for somebody and there's just no breakthrough, no breakthrough, no breakthrough. Like nothing is happening. You know, and those moments are always awkward because what are you gonna do? Like, well, Jesus loves you and I'm sorry. You know, but this is part of what we're navigating is some of those mysteries. But there are times that we've been praying and nothing has happened and you just hear the whisper from heaven that's like, talk to them about unforgiveness, right? And now how would you know that? That's not written on the outside. That's not like written down the leg. But it's like, hey, I just feel like God wants us to ask, is there any area of unforgiveness in your life? And they're like, well, actually, yeah, you know, my whatever. And then we, oh, okay, let's talk about that. And we go through and we reconcile unforgiveness. And then we say, let's come back to the healing issue and suddenly healed. Okay, what happened? you cultivated a reality of a higher realm. And when that reality came into your awareness, you released it, and what happened? Eternity got released on earth, right? Heaven actually came, and my awareness and my affection became the access point. Now, if that's true of heaven, that's also true of hell. 
You know that James 3 says that where selfish ambition and envy exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. With selfish ambition, that word means desire for self first. So when my desire comes out of alignment, my desire is now pointed fully at myself and putting myself first. Do you know what gets released on earth? Another reality that comes through me. If eternity becomes only a concern for when we die, we actually lose sight of the fact that our assignment is not to go to heaven when we die, but to bring heaven to earth now, right? And we actually lose sight of the spiritual reality that are actually attached to my day-to-day choices. Which is why there's just kind of this real sober understanding that comes with that knowledge of like, look, how important is it for me to steward my affections? How important is it for me to know where my awareness and where my desire lies? And and probably when you understand that eternity is not just about then, but eternity actually is looking to impact our world right now, that you go, oh, now I would perhaps understand why the enemy would attempt to remove any thought of eternity from thought and just completely erase it. Because what happens if we just erase it? John Tyson calls it the eclipse of the eternal with the imminent. The eclipse of the eternal with the imminent. Let me read you this. This this is from a philosopher and an author. Those who can believe that what happens on earth is but a brief prelude to an eternal existence will offset any tendency towards envy with the thought that the success of others is a momentary phenomenon against the backdrop of an eternal life. But when a belief in an afterlife is dismissed as a childish and scientifically impossible opiate, the pressure to succeed and find fulfilment will inevitably intensify by the awareness that one has only a single and frighteningly fleeting opportunity to do so. In such a context, earthly achievements can no longer be seen as an overture to what one may realise in another world, but are the sum total of all that one will ever amount to. Now, I'll leave that up there for a minute because I know that's a lot of big words. What are they saying is, man, when you steward your heart according to the existence of another life, you interpret circumstances around that in light of eternity. But if you remove eternity, all that you have is this one life and then there is intense pressure to succeed and achieve because this is all it will ever amount to. And this is what we're seeing happen in culture, Right? Is it's like, I live for me, which means I want, I want money, I want wealth, I want power, I want fame, I want success, I want some form of greatness pulled out of this life. And, and the world is looking for fulfillment through what it can achieve and possess. Okay, so next question. How does this affect our formation in Jesus? Because remember we talked in the very first week about the pattern of the world looking to conform our hearts, right? So whatever dominates culture will conform the heart of a believer unless they're actively being transformed by Jesus. 
So the pattern of the world is so much about earn, achieve, succeed, possess, right? And so the primary concern for us as disciples of Jesus is our desire is being distorted. Our desire is being distorted. A primary concern is that our affections get captured by the pursuit of something else. And that I end up actually following something else more than I'm following Jesus. And and you see this especially in the area of desire for greatness or desire for significance. And then you see that overflown and how that affects our relationship with time and how that affects our relationship with money. So I wanna go look at Luke 22. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Can we just stop there? Because I actually, do you know like the Bible records a number of times the disciples fighting over who's the greatest? And what's funny about that is they wrote about it themselves, right? Like Luke has written, he says, this is an eyewitness account. Right now, contextually, Jesus has just told his disciples that he's gonna die. And the very next thing that's recorded is the disciples arguing that they're the greatest. And I'm just imagining Luke and they're like, he's interviewing them and they're like, so Jesus just told us really clearly that he's gonna die. And Luke's like, oh, that must've been so hard. What happened next? And they all look at each other and they're like, well, we had a fight over which one of us was the greatest. (laughs) And Luke's like, what? You guys are terrible friends, terrible. But I'm like, I love that they, like, in hindsight, they're like, oh, we should capture this story, right? So Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And what stands out to me from this story is like they're fighting over who's greatest. And Jesus did not rebuke them for that. You know, I think sometimes our view of Jesus would be a little bit that he would be like, you wicked, prideful, selfish disciples, none of you get to be great. Stupid that you're even thinking about that. But he didn't. He actually didn't like dispute them against their desire for greatness, which tells us something. And the other thing that didn't happen was that he actually didn't deny that greatness comes on a scale. Now that would mess with us a little bit. So you know what he didn't do? Everybody gets a trophy. You get a trophy and you get a trophy and you get a trophy. No, he actually didn't. Right? So two things that you should probably recognize from this is that Jesus has no problems with a desire for greatness. And Jesus does not deny that greatness actually comes on the scale. What he comes to challenge is what is your measuring system? How do you measure greatness? Right? Because that's the thing that he challenged the disciples on. That word, when he says, but who is greater, the one sitting at the table being served or the one doing the serving? And he says, in your world, it's the person being served. 
right? And that word greater is, the, is a word that means the external measurement of a thing, right? Like literally, like what has the most weight? And he says, in your world, this is what has the most weight, but not so with me, right? I, I am among you as one who serves. And so what he's really challenging is he's saying, look, there is nothing wrong with you having a desire for greatness, but you are captured by the wrong vision of what greatness actually is. And all that could be true for all of us. Look, all of us have a desire for greatness. There is nothing wrong with that. But how do you measure it is such a fundamental question, right? Or maybe a better way of asking it would be this. What is your vision of the good life? What is your vision of the good life? What is it that you're striving after? What's the world you're trying to create? What would you fully flourishing look like in the eyes of your imagination? Like when you imagine this is good life for me, this is me fully flourishing, what does it look like? Because these are some really good measurement questions, right? Like it might just be like, look, I'm kicking back on a yacht in the Caribbean. Like no worries in life. You know, you might be a mom with small children. You're like, look, the good life just looks like 10 minutes without somebody asking me a question, right? Like, can I just go to the bathroom without somebody asking me where, to go, where I'm going? You know, right? So it's like, you know, we get captured by these ideas of like, what is it that I want? And, and it's a really good question for your discipleship because your vision will determine your pursuit. And sometimes when we look deep enough, we don't want what we think that we want or we don't want the thing that we've been told that we should want. And our heart has actually been oriented by something else, right? And look, the world is looking to sell you its measuring system. There is an external measuring system of what is high value in this world that we live in. And it is summed up by what you do, what you have, and what people think of you, right? What you do, what you have, what people think of you. I was at, when I was in, in Kona just a few weeks ago, a guy was telling us, he, he was saying, because we were going after this, like what makes you significant? And he talked about how he had been a doctor and then he actually retired and is now doing discipleship training school at YWAM. And he said he had his first experience of going to a gathering where people ask, what do you do? Which is one of the first questions that often gets asked when we meet people, right? What's your name? Within a few minutes, what is it that you do? And boom, the measuring system comes into place, right? He said he had his first experience in a very, very long time of when somebody asked him what to do, what he did, and he couldn't answer that he was a doctor and he answered that he was a missionary and the extreme difference of his experience from those two answers. Because he says, when I, when I say that I'm a doctor, I get received a certain way. But in that moment when I said I'm a missionary, sudden awkwardness in people who didn't wanna to talk to me anymore. <laughs> right? And we are constantly being bombarded by the messages that you have value because of what you do, what you own, what people think of you. 
right? And, and I, I talked about this in a message earlier this year, so I, I don't wanna go back deep into it. But one of the things we talked about was actually the history of the economy here in the United States and what happened after World War II, right? Which was, you know, after World War II, we had a bunch of factories that had been designed to produce for the war. And because the war was not on American soil, while other places were left in destruction and ruin, you know, because they had dropped bombs on each other, that didn't happen here. So you had an intact production system left, but we no longer needed to point that at the war machine. So what happened is they re like all of that um, infrastructure got pointed at producing goods for consumption. Right, And I showed you this quote back then. This was a quote from an economist at the time who said this, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced and discarded at an ever accelerating rate. Now, I want you to just let that hit you. There was a conscious decision to disciple people into consumption as a form of satisfaction, right? And there was a partnership between the economists of the time and the advertising industry. Now, do you know that the birth of the modern advertising industry came out of Freud's nephew who took personal psychology to a cultural level to manipulate your desire to buy? Right? So it manipulated desire in attempt to sell things to you. Right? So it played on your fear. It played on your longings. It played on your wants. And then it said, Do you know how we can solve all of those things? By what I'm offering. Right? And now you have the rise of personal advertising. Oh my goodness. Right? Like you notice you talk about something and then Instagram's trying to sell it to you the next day. Has anybody else noticed that? Do you know why, like me and Instagram are not friends right now? Because I'm 45 and Instagram tries to remind me of that every single day. And Instagram is trying to make me afraid of wrinkles and getting fat. That like, like literally every four, that's the thing. It's trying to sell me things to stop my wrinkles and it's trying to tell me you're gonna get fat lady. Like you're getting older, your body's changing. You might wanna buy a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm like, This is kind of depressing, right? But that's how advertising works. It is constantly attempting to capture your imagination and your affection to create in your mind either a fear of something or a vision of something so that it can sell something to you. But it means that the way that they're doing it is they're attempting to disciple your imagination. They're attempting to capture your affection. And then, but what it does to us spiritually is it's constantly appealing to you that what you need is outside of God. We can sell you everything that you possibly need. The one thing you don't need, Jesus. 
you know, and we live in a world that's like, hey, you know, kind of like we don't mind if you have your God as long as he's not what matters most. As long as he's not what matters most. Because when, when whatever captures our affections the most is what shapes our pursuit, right? Okay, 1 John 2, 15, 17. Don't set the affection of your heart on this world or in loving the things of the world. The love of the Father and love of the world are incompatible. For all the world can offer us, the gratification of our flesh, the allurement of the things of the world, and the obsession with status and importance. None of these things come from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires are in the process of passing away, but those who love to do the will of God live forever. You have a temporary and eternal contrast right there. All of these things, temporary. But those who love to do the will of the Father are anchored in eternity, right? And, and here's what's crazy to me is that he actually says these things are incompatible. You actually cannot have both. You cannot have love for the world and love for the Father exist at the same time. They are incompatible, right? Elsewhere in Matthew, it says, you cannot love God and mammon, right? Mammon is the spiritual power behind the desire for money. You cannot have both because when you love one, you'll hate the other. Now, let's just put it in simple terms. Who knows that I cannot have a desire to be skinny and a desire to eat McDonald's for lunch every single day? Like one of them will be an intention, but one of them's gonna win, but I cannot have both. Like the more I invest in one, the more I move further away from the other, right? Have you heard that saying, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels? I'm like, look, you ain't never eaten a Big Mac. Right? You need to try some more things. Right? Who knows that I can't have a desire to be in fit and really good shape and a desire to experience no pain in my body? Who knows that I can't, like, look, I can have a desire to steward and manage my money really, really well, and I can have a desire right now to go somewhere warm. And those two things might be incompatible. Like, look, I'm not gonna lie, on Cyber Monday, I'm like, I wonder if there's any deals to Fiji. (laughs) I was looking, and there's not. (laughs) Fiji was, I was like, who knows? But no, it was out of my reach, right? Can, Can you see the rivalry? Can you see that it's actually two competing affections? Right? And, and the same often applies in our walk with Jesus. Right? We're like, Jesus, I want to follow you. God, I want, I want to put you first. God, I want to put you first. And then I don't know if this ever happened to you when you were younger, but it's like, God, I want to put you first until you're like, but if I put God first, is He going to make me be a missionary in Africa? And now I'm in a crisis, right? And then until you like go to some extreme places, like really, really cold places, and then you're like... Actually, I'd take Africa. <laughs> you know, but what does it do? Is it's like Jesus? I wanted, I, I, I want to follow you, but at some point, I'm going to have to decide: Do I want my comfort more? You know, and, and we hear these scriptures that we love, like "I know the plans I have for you," says the Lord, "plans to prosper you and not to harm you, and give you a future and a hope." And I'm like, "Oh, that sounds good. That sounds really good." 
But there is gonna be a point that the challenge comes of does him and me have the same understanding of what that is? Right, like when, when he says, I'm gonna prosper you, and I'm like, that's really good. Jesus, can I tell you what prosperity looks like to me? And then let's do it my way. Right? Can I tell you, Jesus, what, what the good life really is? And then can you just be magic and fulfill that wish? And there's this place in our life, in our discipleship, that our vision actually gets challenged. And we have a choice of what are we gonna trust more? Am I gonna trust my version of what I believe to be good and great? Or am I gonna trust my Father to lead me in His goodness in a way that actually might challenge what my pursuit is? Which is why it's so important that we do periodic affection checks. Because whatever's, whatever grips my heart is gonna fit, manifest in my life. It's gonna manifest in my habits and it's gonna determine how I use my resources. Remember, which has eternal impact, right? And, and, and when I look at that way that that boils down, I think we are so challenged. We are so challenged in the area of time and in the area of money. Like time-wise, you, you read busyness is one of the biggest challenges in the culture that we live in, right? So here we are like supposed to live aware and consciously stewarding our affections for another reality. Like look, my mind and my heart are anchored here and yet we are whoa, running through life so fast that it's like I barely got time to like think about myself. You know, and you're kind of falling into bed at the end of the day and then you're getting up to do it again tomorrow. And, and when time begins to go at that, that pace, I don't know how we do this conscious cultivating unless we make room for it. And, and, and so what we've really lost is some of the discipline of silence and solitude and meditation, which are actually powerful spiritual warfare tools to steward our hearts. And when I no longer steward that intentionally, now I'm getting driven by the outside forces. I'm getting driven by everything that would place a demand on me. And, you know, I feel like Gabe's actually been talking to me about this a little bit. It's just like, it is hard enough to manage my own time in the pressures of busyness to make sure I'm consciously stewarding my heart. And what Gabe was saying is, whatever the values that we demonstrate in our own lives are the values that our kids are gonna adopt. Right? And so I love, one of the things that I love is this generation and how much they value like um, giving opportunity to our kids, right? Like we've, we've done a really good job at giving them opportunities in sports and doing other things and investing in things that they love. But if we are not with more intentionality teaching them to steward their heart in Jesus, what are we unconsciously demonstrating as the value system that they're gonna adopt? Right? And if we've lost sight of doing that for ourselves, let's make sure that we're not discipling our kids into a false value system of what matters most in this world. Now, I'm not saying don't invest in their lives. I'm just saying be very intentional about what you're demonstrating is the value system of heaven. 
And then money. You know, nothing wrong with money in itself. Money in itself is an excellent facilitator of trade. Right? All that it is facilitates trade. Money in itself isn't evil. It's when the desire for money captures my heart and captures my affections that it becomes a problem, right? Because the Bible describes mammon, demonic power that uses money and possession to capture your affection and move you away from God. As in what happens is it makes money and it makes possession the end goal rather than the means, right? Now this has got nothing to do with how much money you have. And it's got everything to do with what captures your heart and what is the end goal for you? What is this all towards? What is this all for? Because money or the, the, the spiritual entity behind it is tempts you to believe that your needs can be met through what you gain, through what you own, through what you stack up in a bank account. And then it becomes your source of trust and your source of safety and security. And it's the temptation that began from the very beginning in the garden, lay hold of abundance outside of God. I don't need Him because I have this. And, And when I set my mind on the things of the world, it shapes what's called a scarcity mentality. I will never have enough. Therefore, I must preserve and protect what is mine. Right? And we can do that over our time, right? And you hear that all the time, don't have enough time, don't have enough time, don't have enough time. But we do that over our money as well. And that any place in our heart that we get into, there is never enough, means that we're being shaped by a mentality that's not coming from heaven. And what happens is I no longer think of my resources in light of eternity, right? Like, you know, the Bible says, the Bible says that you have been given bread for food and seed for sowing, right? The Bible says you have been given what you need and what to give. You've been given both. Now, there will be a day that God is gonna ask you, how did you do with that? And the thing that we don't wanna do is be like, oh, all the seed that I was supposed to sow, I stored in the barn and I grew nothing. Right? Because it comes down to an issue of trust. Do we trust God enough to provide what we need for food so that I'll sow when He calls me to sow? Right, That generosity becomes an overflow of my life because why? I'm stewarding in light of a greater reality because my affection has been captured by heaven. And what heaven is concerned about is people. So what do we do? What do we do when we are being so attempted to be conformed by the message of the world around us? Well, I broke it down into three simple things. One, cultivate your affection. Work on what is capturing your imagination. You know, um, 
And there's, as I've, studied, I've been studying Ephesians lately, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but in Ephesians 1, it talks about how he says, look, praise be to the God, our Father, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Like there's this whole thing that we get into that's like, you have no idea of what you've been given, right? That's basically what he's saying. You have no idea what you've been given. And it, basically the way he writes it is, what, if you could figure it out, you would combust into spontaneous praise if you really got it. But then he goes on to say, for this reason, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be open. In another translation, I like this, that the eyes of your imagination would be illuminated. Right? What To know the hope of your calling, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and the power available to us who believe. So what's he saying is like, there, you don't understand yet. So my prayer is that your imagination and your heart would be, get captured. Because if your heart got captured by this, it would change everything. And that's what he's saying. And, and so I've actually like, I, and, and I recommend this. I've picked that up as my prayer. God, would you illuminate the eyes of my heart? Would you open the eyes of my imagination? Would you capture my longing and my desire? For the hope of your calling, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurably great power for those who believe. Because I really believe if we got captured by that, all of this would mean nothing. Right? But it's a matter of taking the time to make sure that your affection has been captured and your imagination has been captured by the right thing. Right? So that when you dream of the future, dream in those contexts. What would my life look like if I was fully captivated by those things? So we take, like this is where we return to the place of meditation. And then we ask our questions like, God, when you say you know the plans you have for me and it's plans to prosper me and not to harm me, can you show me what that looks like to you? I wanna submit my imagination of that to whatever that looks like to you. And then can you show me what my life would look like completely blessed and stewarded under your care? Like we, we've got to let that capture our hearts because then we'll pursue it, right? And then we just add to that a couple of things. Man, practice gratitude. Gratitude is a deliberate pushback on the lie that there's not enough or that you need something else to be happy or that you can't be happy right now. Like that, that's for one day when, or that you are not living the good life right now. And that's for another day. Do you, like, look, I, I'm from New Zealand, so there's no such thing as Thanksgiving in New Zealand. But it's crazy to me that Black Friday follows Thanksgiving. Right, let's stop for a hot second and be thankful for all the blessings that we have. And the very next day, let's be captured by a crazy pursuit to get more stuff. I mean, that's insane for our formation. It's like Thanksgiving out, consumption in. Let's go, right? So gratitude actually is a practice that continues to anchor our heart and our mind in that place of like, I don't always need something else to be happy, right? And then generosity. Generosity is an act of spiritual warfare that constantly declares money does not have my heart. 
Money does not have my heart, right? And, and I think there's a fantastic question that we should be willing to dare to ask. God, what does it look like to steward my money with eternity in mind? Right? Because this is where your worldview question hits money, hits, like your worldview question hits like the road. It hits into activation because I can have a theory for it out there, but if how I live this life really influences the next one, then I want to work that backwards. What does it look like to manage and to steward both my time and my money with eternity in mind? Because if you ask that question, it will put pressure on what has your heart. Because it will force you to confront probably areas of obedience. If eternity has fully captured my affection, how would I use my resources now? Okay, should we practice? Should we do, should we do an activation? Because otherwise I'm gonna tell you these questions and then you'll say it was a good message and I'll ask you next week and you'll say I don't remember. Okay, so here's how about you close your eyes. We're gonna ask Jesus some questions. So let's ask him this one first. Jesus, when you say that your plan is to prosper me, what does that look like to you? Okay, now I want you to take a moment to practice gratitude. What is it that you have in your life to be deeply thankful for? Okay, final question. God, what would it look like to steward my time and my money with eternity in mind? Okay, now you get to decide what you're gonna do with that. But can I just encourage you with something? 
Like, I know it's the Christmas season. I know the Christmas season gets crazy busy. I know there's additional stuff always on the calendar. I know we're try- like doing gifts and generosity in that form. But can I encourage you to build a rhythm into the middle of that that purposefully is cultivating affection towards the greater reality? That's purposefully taking your affection and going in the middle of everything else. And so many of these are good things. So many of these are good things. But I'm taking the time to cultivate my affection and put it where it belongs. That it's like, yes, Jesus, I love everything that you've given me, but I love you more. And just let that flow into everything else that we do in this season. Can we do that? Okay. Then bless you, church. Have a great week. If you need prayer for anything, we have people who love to pray for you. We have a prayer area over here. Please come ask. Um, Yeah. Have a great week. And we will see you at class tonight.